Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 120 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday, May 7th, 2019. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, I think I can say my, my baseball season is quickly coming to an end. Uh, why do you say that? The Mets are terrible. Uh, you were not too surprised by this, I assume? I'm a little surprised that it happened so quickly. I thought it would be a, a longer, slower, slower, painful It was nicer painful last bleed. year with that like false... Uh, happy start. Uh, the Texas baseball team also not doing so hot. And uh, what else is going poorly? What do you mean? My- the, wait, the Astros are in first place. Oh, you mean the UT baseball I'm team? I mean UT. Oh, I thought the you- Texas baseball. Oh, team. the te- yeah. Yeah, Astros are doing good. Yeah. All right. Well, um, speaking of things, are doing good. Our, our debt are in the Game of Thrones Deadpool. Yeah. The uh, the faculty and staff yeah. UT law faculty. You and me. Hey, who's in first and second place? Oh, there you go. All right. There so, you are. so in the in the in the faculty staff, Deadpool uh, at UT, um, the the co-host of this cod of this podcast of this podcast. Good heavens. <laughs> can, can I get you a drink? <laughs> I, I need a drink. Um, uh, we, we are in first and second. Respectively. By the way, can I can I digress? Uh, we need to do a uh, uh, a thirsty Thursday episode where we have a couple of pints while we're doing this. What do you think? Um, I think the show might be better quality. We will certainly think it is. It can't be more digressive. Indeed. So, um, or hey, could it? Real Challenge quick, before, accepted. Before we digress further, maybe we should say, what are we going to talk about today? Well, we are. I mean, I, I actually think a, a decent chunk of the episode will be spent on on this week's episodes, plural, of Game of Thrones. All right. Uh, on the national security law front, is there anything to chat about? I mean, I, I want to talk a bit about the the subpoena gate, uh, right? The, the, the brewing, if not sort of open hot war over the subpoenas. All right, so we'll preview some of the legal architecture of the battles that we've been predicting for a long time. No great prediction mm. uh, that there w- would be there will be fights over My subpoenas. predictive skills were on lock on this one. They were. Um, so were everybody else's. We've got, uh, we've got something I'd like to touch on relating to the IDF's use of uh, kinetic force against uh, Hamas cyber operations mm. facility that took place in the context of a large armed conflict, but that excited a lot of controversy, a lot of commentary. So we're going to unpack and distinguish some of the policy and legal issues there. Um, got a National Security Division update, a, a trio of pretty interesting cases that we can we can chew on a bit. Um, there's been a lot of stuff happening at the Guantanamo Military Commissions, although I think none of it is quite yet to the level of a sort of fully formed discussion topic. But in both the 9-11 case where Judge Perella is leaving, Again, <laughs> more judge problems. I, I did see that yet and yet more evidence that that structure with the staffing with the staffing structure, even when people aren't trying to get jobs from one of the litigants, you still have the problem of the impermanence of the, the rotating people Indeed. that are in the judge positions. And then also in the sentencing of Majid Khan, there's actually been some controversy over um, motions by the defense that have been rejected by the trial judge. Um, Debates that I'd, I'd like to spend more time on once there's a little more information in the public record. Okay. A lot of this is sort of still. Do you mean controversy out. about the some kind of procedural controversy yes. or, yes. or controversy to, about the merits? No, no, the, controversy about like sort of access to particular information that might may or may not bear on on the sentence, ah, okay. etc. So right. there's I, as I, I want to lay down a marker that there's actually a lot of stuff happening at Guantanamo. I just I think it would be better for for all involved to let more of it firm up before You're we talk it's not about it. Ripe. It's not ripe. Okay, very good. Um, maybe if we if we have some time, we'll we'll mention uh, the 
the commentary froth about use of force in Venezuela. Um, <laughs> oh, you mean you mean Senator Graham saying, quote, I don't care about voting on the use of force, unquote? That could mean a lot of things. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, I mean, he's too busy reading the Mueller report. Oh, wait, no, he didn't read that either. I don't know what he reads, but... <laughs> not, uh, not, he doesn't listen to this podcast. But I know what we watch, and I know that when we get to the Frivaldi segment, oh. we are going to talk about episode four. I, of I think we have a lot to say about episode four. All right, we Epis- will, episodes four. We will, <laughs> I'm curious why you keep talking about it in plural. Because uh, it's multiple episodes no, I, squeezed one, into one. I can see that you feel that way. Um, all right. So let, let's get our vegetables out of the way, shall we? Let's mm. talk national security and law. Uh, as everybody knows, there with a Democratic Congress, uh, Democratic majority in the House, we've got requests for documents. And the Trump administration is resisting on a number of fronts. And as everyone understood, this would lead to litigation over the subpoenas. So, Steve, why don't you want to give a bit of a primer on how this sort of works in the abstract, and then we can talk about the particular application? Sure. I mean, so I think it's helpful to start from a level of generality, which is that Congress, um, both each chamber in its entirety and through powers that each chamber has delegated to the committees, um, has subpoena power. This is settled. This is well established. The Supreme Court has repeatedly emphasized that this is a permissible exercise in the abstract. We'll get to the details. Mm-hmm. Um, that there is nothing especially new, novel, or invidious, uh, insidious, I should say, mm-hmm. uh, about Congress subpo- issuing subpoenas to the executive branch. So is it fair to say that the congressional subpoena power at a high level of abstraction has, uh, looks, walks, and talks the same as, say, grand jury subpoena, administrative subpoena, and other forms of executive branch subpoenas. In that the, is, yes. it's, a, it's a, in most instances, it's a sort of subject matter and type of record neutral general power to compel the production of documents. I think that's right with two important caveats. One, that the subject matter actually does matter, um, right? That, that, that there are subject matter limits on Congress's subpoena power that are specific to Congress. Um, but two, I think the critical distinction between a congressional subpoena and the others you mentioned, Bobby, is the difficulty of enforcement um, in the face of a recalcitrant executive branch, that, that the system has evolved to a point where enforcement of congressional subpoenas really does depend, at least to some degree, on the executive branch, which becomes a real problem when the executive branch doesn't want to. That's, that is definitely a, you know, it, it's sort of, you know, John Marshall's made his ruling, now let him enforce it. When, when one branch that is not the executive branch needs execution of the laws, it is by definition mostly and certainly directly in a formal sense beholden to the executive branch. And well, if they don't want to play ball, there's a check that comes into play there. And the question then becomes, when is it ever, uh, when's it ever appropriate to not follow through with enforcement actions? Is it is that a violation of the take care clause? I mean, pro- I, th- I think we're so we're so past violations of clauses at this point. I mean, so we must not lose sight of the formal legal details. Uh, well, that's what I'm trying to walk through. So, all right. So Congress's subpoena power, um, the Supreme Court in a series of cases, I think most prominent among them, a case called McGrain versus Doherty from 19. 19- 27, uh, the good old days of Teapot Dome, Bobby, Um, basically that as long as Congress is acting with a, quote, legitimate legislative purpose, right, that Congress inherited the so-called power of inquiry um, from Parliament, um, that the Constitution implicitly recognizes the power of inquiry, and that the power of inquiry includes compulsory process even directed against sitting executive branch officers. Um, until 1855, 
the way that Congress would historically um, enforce its subpoenas and enforce a contempt citation for those who refuse to comply with congressional process um, was to literally send out the sergeant at arms, arrest the contemnor, and um, throw them into the old Capitol jail. Um, I love the visual. So a little mini internal to the legislative executive power. Exactly. Right, I, exactly I imagine so. they used to have different hiring criteria for the sergeant at arms than whatever it is today. I, I think I think some skill with you know physical force probably used to be a, a part of the job that maybe just you know now you just have to open the door. Oh, that's the doorkeeper. This actually sounds. By the way, it sounds like the setup, sort of the frame for like a pretty fun 19th century historical novel. If somebody would want to get on that. Mm. Well, so the problem is, is that it turns out that that wasn't very effective. Um, <laughs> you, you don't say. And so Congress in 1855 passes the predecessor to the modern contempt of Congress statute, which makes it not just a civil contempt offense, but rather a criminal offense to be in contempt of Congress, which like all other criminal offenses requires prosecution by the Justice Department. Mm-hmm. Um, that historically has been a source of friction, um, not in cases where the executive branch is on board with Congress that there's been contempt, but in cases in which the executive branch is itself the party in contempt. That's right. So there's there's an inherent in in structural uh, right. conflict there. Now, I, I think it's safe to say that until recently, most of the disputes over congressional subpoenas directed to the executive branch have been dealt with on a case-by-case basis, where um, in general, the executive branch respected Congress's subpoena power, but where the subpoena was asking for information that was covered by an applicable, or ar- at least arguably covered by an applicable privilege, or where the subpoena arguably exceeded Congress's legitimate legislative purposes, you'd see pushback on a case-by-case basis. What I think is different about at least the rhetorical approach of the current administration, if not their formal legal position, um, and I wrote a Washington Post op-ed about this, is that there seems to be a more structural resistance to the notion of subpoenas at all. Um, President Trump said, we're fighting all the subpoenas. Sure. Although although very quickly then people began still testifying in some context. And, to a point. I mean, this, this is typical, right? The as, as I think maybe Goldsmith put it, the blunderbuss over-the-top statement, followed by the implementation that's at variance with the blunderbuss statement, yeah, I mean, which doesn't I, make the blunderbuss statement okay. I must but, confess, I'm unfamiliar with prior presidents saying, you know, we will fight all of the subpoenas. I don't recall anyone saying that either, not claiming that they did. But the fact is, he's not actually seeming to fight them all yet, right? Well, okay, so no, except that um, subpoenas related to anything about him personally are being fought. Um, subpoenas that are in any way related to the Mueller investigation are being fought. Um, and I think the pre- um, the president, right through his personal capacity, has filed two lawsuits. We talked about them briefly. Okay, now that, um, okay the key thing you said there, he went to court to press his views in those capacities, which I think we'd all agree, and I think we said in our last show, is um, that's in the- it, may be- it may not be the right argument of the merits, but that's the right procedural path to take. There's nothing wrong with going to court to try to press your view. Is no, there? I think my co- – so here's my concern. I think I, I mean, I think I'm, I'm repeating myself now, but I'll say it again anyway. Um, you know, the courts typically don't resolve these cases that quickly. I mean, we talked about this in the context yeah, of, right. of those suits. Um, and so I think the question is, you know, if you're the president, and this is just a sort of delaying tactic, right, how fast is this all going to go? Um, on the merits, I mean, I, I think it's worth stressing um, that I have a hard time believing a 
any court, and in the Supreme Court as well, is really going to rest any of these cases on Congress's legitimate legislative purpose, right? That that is a, a, an understanding that has historically been construed quite broadly, that investigating the sitting president, that investigating, you know, the same content as the Mueller investigation um, would be well within the wheelhouse of. I, I think I misunderstood you at first. Yeah. I thought you were going to say, I thought you were beginning to say that they're not going to touch the investigative purpose issue. What I hear you say and what I would agree yeah. with is, no, they'll touch it and they'll agree that this is a legitimate yes, yes, investigative yes. purpose. No, no, right. And that, and that the litigation is going to hinge on the defenses, right, on the privilege claims. Right. And it'll become sort of a, look, if you have a particular statement that a witness would otherwise give, if you have a particular document that's been requested that's privileged, then, of course, like any other privileged document or statement, right. that'll be dealt with on a case-by-case basis. Right. But there are all these tricky questions about privilege the courts have never answered, right? So, for yeah. example, um, the White House counsel, right? So, Don McGahn. Um, to what extent does attorney-client privilege apply to the president's conversations with the White House counsel? To what extent was that privilege waived when the president allowed slash instructed, depending on who you believe, McGahn right. to sit down with the special counsel? waiver or use waiver? I mean, is it, right. is it a sweeping waiver? What about executive privilege? And I think – and one of the things I think is really important to point out here is these privileges are shields. They're not usually swords. Um, and that's a pretty important difference, right? What it means is the privileges are defenses against compulsory process. They are not offensive weapons to prevent process in the first place. So the normal course for people who receive subpoenas in any context, when they have a claim that there's privilege or that it's an ultra vires action on the part of the purported subpoenaing authority, is to move to quash. You go to court mm-hmm. and you seek to persuade a judge that the, the subpoena should be modified or quashed altogether in light of your argument. And, and so I hear you saying, like, that's the defensive, that's the shield uh, approach. Um, but we're not even there yet because what's happening here is there's no— Right. So, you, But then you, you contrasted the shield approach with the sword approach, which I take it is your analogy for, for what's going on where the executive branch may just sit in its hands and refuse to take action to uh, enforce any attempt by Congress to assert uh, criminal contempt. Right. Or or more to the point, I mean, the, the White House said yesterday at one point that b- before McGahn said he wasn't going to comply with the subpoena, the White House threatened to take steps to try to prevent him from testifying. And I don't know how, what those steps are. Are. I mean, do you think they were thinking of it like a, an a prior restraint? A prior, yeah, that look, I mean, so we know there's a lot of bluster, and yes. so some of this is bluster. The True. question is, what legal positions are they going to take? They haven't actually gone to court to try to, well, stop because McGahn said he won't comply, right? And so, and so we're in this trap that I think a lot of us predicted was going to happen, where the house is going to be holding a whole bunch of officials in contempt for refusing yeah. to. I mean, here's the thing is, right? Just, just I want to be as clear as possible, there's no scenario where every single question McGahn might be asked is privileged. Right. No, clearly right? not. I mean, the, if they get up there and just say, what is your name, right? So privilege, does not, privilege does not apply to the answer to that question. Well, I, I don't think there's, any, there's not any daylight between us on the, the idea that the, clearly the president left, left his own devices would make wildly overbroad mm-hmm. privilege and other claims to try to fend off any and all oversight because that's who he is. Um, the interesting question is when you have this situation where there's a division between the executive function needed to force people to, to face these issues in the first instance, you know, is there a mechanism whereby Congress can get into court and force, uh, force the issue when there's a power of initiative that lies on the executive side with DOJ declining, presumably, though we don't yet know for sure, um, declining to uh, enforce any kind of congressional contempt citation. So can what happens then? What's what's the right procedural posture to resolve these kinds of disputes? Because 
after all, it is possible in theory that in some different universe, right. there's a Congress in which Congress is making claims that it should not be making, yeah. and the executive branch is properly declining to cooperate. And, and I, I actually think, I mean, we have to we can look to the past, right? I mean, I think the the well, some, like McCarthy, right, the, right? I was going to say the House on American Affairs Committee and and the Senate, whatever the hell committee it was called. Um, there are some important Supreme Court cases from you know the McCarthy hearings um, about sort of resisting congressional right. you know, overbroad congressional subpoenas. So it seems like the courts are the natural tiebreaker, but how do you make sure this these issues when there's a dispute get teed up? That's in that's the tricky part. I mean, I think it's it's a little fluky, right? Because it's sort of um, so I would prefer a scenario where Congress created some kind of fast track procedure, um, where you had you know disputes over congressional subpoenas to the executive branch going to a special three judge district court um, with an expedited timeline with a mandatory appeal to the Supreme Court. Yeah. You skip right over the circuit. So, so it's not so much that we don't know who can be the tiebreaker when these tr- types of interbranch disputes come out. It's, it's just it takes slow. so long, right? Which maybe isn't that big a deal in some contexts. But in this context, it's everything. And so, so, so Josh Chaffetz, uh, our mutual friend Josh Chaffetz, who has a wonderful book, Congress's Constitution, about how Congress sort of asserts its institutional prerogative. Josh and I have this long-running fight about the sort of inadequacy and inefficacy of judicial review in the context of these very types of disputes. Um, and Josh's basic point is, you know, by the time that the courts will finish resolving these issues, it'll be too late. Um, Josh instead takes the position that Congress should resort to its other leverage mechanisms as a way of implicitly coercing executive branch compliance. Well, and, and that would that would work best, of course, if it's unified party control of both houses. Um, since, but so they only, the Democrats only have the House, but they can, if they want to play constitutional hardball, could use the leverage over funding and appropriations yep. to to gum things to, up, decline to pass must pass spending bills, and then and then it becomes a shut down the government who's to blame fight, yep. and the politics of that, as we've seen, are complicated. Now I will just and, say, and other people pay the immediate cost. That's, well, that's absolutely true. I will say it's worth remembering that when considering articles of impeachment against President Nixon, one of the categories Congress was debating at the time Nixon resigned um, was Nixon stonewalling of various efforts to – of various uh, congressional subpoenas. Um, so it's also possible – I think uh, Speaker Pelosi, I think, even alluded to this this morning um, – that for those who really would like the House to look seriously at impeachment, um, a sort of – increasingly categorical or at least effectively categorical resistance to meaningful congressional oversight could be its own impeachment ground. Controversial, of course, but not without precedent. Yeah, you know my view on this, that impeachment in the House, while knowing full well that's going nowhere in the Senate, does nothing but benefit uh, the Trump administration or President Trump himself uh, from an electoral viewpoint and doesn't achieve anything symbolically that couldn't be achieved through a censure which I think would have less Indeed. spillover impact on politics. I feel like we've said a lot this last it week. It sounds familiar. All right. Well, uh, Second verse, same as the first. <laughs> anything else to say about subpoenas? I'm Henry VIII, I am. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> um, all right. Should we change uh, to our next topic? Henry VIII, I am, I am. Okay. <laughs> You're killing me. Um, I got married to the woman next door. She's been married seven times before. You're not really singing it, though. It's more you're saying True. it. True. I don't want to say it. All right. Um, so this weekend, there was... Uh, so a horrifying exchange, uh, I think at this point, something like 600 missiles, uh, apparently starting with missiles fired or rockets fired by uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad into Israel and then 
uh, Hamas gets involved, some 600 total missiles fired indiscriminately, uh, as it looks to me, uh, into Israel. And Israel, of course, re- responding with some 300 plus uh, airstrikes and other forms of, of more targeted responses. Uh, a, a lot of nothing to say about that, but armed conflict, a lot of armed conflict going on there. In the midst of it all, there's this most remarkable tweet on the IDF account uh, saying that uh, the Hamas cyber cyber capability had been used in a, a sort of unspecified and apparently unsuccessful attempt to conduct some kind of attack. Later on, there's there are statements from Israeli officials saying, like, it was something that was targeting civilians in some fashion. Uh, that was that was defeated, but then uh, the Israeli Air Force came in and destroyed the building that was the HQ of this particular or the operations center for this particular Hamas uh, organization. I'm not. It's not clear, by the way, at least to me, um, to what extent can we talk about this as like the Hamas cyber capability? How formal was the structure? But this was the physical location where either the personnel and the equipment, maybe just one or the other, but the epicenter of how this was done. And it immediately excited a tremendous amount of commentary online, some of it policy, some of it legal. The, the policy argument that some were advancing was that after, after years and years of wondering what, if ever, might tip a state into using kinetic lethal force to respond to a cyber attack, voila, now we know the Israelis went and did it. There it is. Uh, and then the legal argument was something along the lines of this was in some way or fashion somehow a violation of international law because by the Israelis' own account, they'd already defeated or disrupted that attack. And then they came in afterwards and used lethal force. Uh, I think both those views are just completely wrong. So I wrote something in Lawfare about this. On the policy novelty argument, uh, it, it's certainly the case that this was some novel PR in the middle of an armed <laughs> conflict. That, you know, we don't have we don't have any prior public discussion of this sort of thing. I find it hard to believe that in the context of armed conflict, um, nothing of a like kind has ever happened in the Syrian theater in recent years, or that nothing of a like kind ever happened maybe in the Ukrainian theater with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, you've got some possibility this has happened before, but never mind all that. It's not actually interesting. This isn't novel in the way that a lot of people were first talking about. What would have been interesting and what people for years have indeed been wondering about is outside the context of an armed conflict, is there something in the nature of a hostile cyber activity that could ever constitute an armed attack such that the state could, from a UN charter perspective, respond with the use of force? Um, that's not the situation. There was already a clearly established circumstance of armed conflict underway. And yeah, yes, there are lots of complexities when it comes to uh, uses of force in armed conflict between uh, Hamas and Israel, but none of those questions in any way turn on what went on with this subsidiary episode, this one exchange of a cyber attack and a, and a kinetic response amidst all the missiles and rocket strikes and all the rest. So I think it just Nothing to see here on that particular dimension. It, it's interesting. Otherwise, uh, in particular, it is sort of interesting from a legal perspective. It's just not obviously illegal the way that so many were claiming. Um, the legal argument is that somehow in some fashion under the law of armed conflict, uh, if, they, if the Israelis were able to defeat the cyber attack through cyber means, then they're done. There's no fighting back. Now, that, that can't be right. That's not the rule in any other setting of armed conflict. Uh, the questions are questions of distinction and proportionality. From a distinction perspective, 
you can only intentionally try to strike uh, military objects or proper military uh, targets from the individual perspective, meaning either people who are combatants or who are civilians who are directly participating in hostilities uh, and for such time as they're doing that. There are interesting questions that we don't really have information to answer right now about the particular individuals, if they were targeted at all as individuals. And we don't know that. It could have been targeting the building or the equipment. But if they were targeting them as individuals, uh, what was the Israeli position and belief on what their status was in relation to Hamas overall? You know, in theory, perhaps these might have been not members of Hamas. They There might be interesting arguments about what their status was. Um, there might have been interesting arguments about continuing combat function, all these sorts of things that are very familiar and already existing questions about Israeli use of force in relation to Hamas. The, the cyber example is just a particular application that's not – the cyber domain element of it isn't really doing any interesting work in the fact pattern. Um, separately, there are proportionality questions, of course, but we don't have any reason yet to believe that there were uh, collateral damage – uh, effects that were known to have uh, been likely to occur by the Israelis, let alone that they exceeded the perceived military advantage or expected military advantage. Um, I'm not saying that it won't turn out that way, but it, we don't have any basis for assuming anything uh, improper at this point. Uh, going back to distinction, it it was described as an attack on the HQ, and it's important to emphasize, especially for cyber operations, presumably there were particular capabilities uh, resident there, pure, not just from the individual perspective, but from the from the equipment perspective, and from that perspective, it's possible that this might be analogous to to striking Hamas's um, you know armaments capabilities, its supply chain capabilities, supporting the use of force and the rockets they were firing. Um, it could be any number of things like that. So my bottom line is actually nothing really to see here in terms of novel applications of of cyber deterrence theory or otherwise. What what do you think? I, th- I mean, I, I think that's right. I think as with so many things about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the, the the details are so important and the public discourse tends to be so unnuanced, right, that, you know, this is, uh, shall I say, not aided by the, the rather um, superficial interventions by the President of the United States. Right. Um, well, I, are you referring to the Kentucky Derby <laughs> and the political correctness? I, I, that was a, maybe, you know, in a context in which Trump's tweets and interventions are am, hard to be stunned am, by. That was pretty stunning. I am, I, yes, except I'm so much happier with the president as cultural commentator than the president, <laughs> you know, using his using his soapbox to, to, to actually interfere with world affairs. What do you suppose? I actually think there's a large, there is a relevant larger point here about the Kentucky, the infamous Kentucky, Kentucky Derby tweet. He, he, dis, he decries the disqualification of of uh, maximum security, an aptly named horse, and, and, uh, and its jockey, as political correctness. It's because if you, because if, if you finish first, you ought to win. Well, it does seem inescapable that what he's saying is it's politically correct to enforce the rules. Yes, that that's quite that surprises you. No, no, it's just quite symbolic, isn't it? I mean, there's very little this this lunatic says that surprises me anymore. I mean. Yeah. You know, he retweeted what was it, Jerry Falwell Jr. over the weekend, what did talking Jerry about Falwell how um, we should extend his term by two years to make up for the yeah. time he lost during the Mueller investigation. So there, when when he does that sort of thing, uh, I think the Kentucky Derby deal is just like there he is. No one can stop him from just yeah. like spouting off. When you when you see something like that, you just described. 
Um, I think that's trolling people. That's trying to I get know, people wound but, up. But the problem is, is that like so? I mean, and, and so people are like, he's just kidding, okay? Except no, I don't, I don't mean, I don't mean kidding. No, no, I mean but they're no, very but, different. From no, no, that. but there are a lot of people out there. Who's like it's just a joke. And it's like, well, it's a joke until he actually turns no, these no. tweets into policy. But I'm, and that's not at all what I'm saying. I'm not saying he's just joking. I'm saying he's trying to get people spun up on something that's not actually a commitment. I mean that's fine, but like I mean I, just, I feel like we ought to be able to 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 disavow everything the president says that is actually a dangerous thing for the president. Of course we to be can, saying. but but to it's walk like, and chew at, at the same time. As you like to say, you beat me to the punch. We need to be able to do both. Yes, we need to be able to disavow it and not elevate it to where that's the thing in this news cycle we're talking about. But that all too often is the game he very effectively plays. All right, so, so speaking of outlandish comments that I reacted to on Twitter, this one was all your fault, right? How about <laughs> oh that was great. How yeah, about how about that. how about Lindsey Graham saying that he. He's going to call Chief Justice Roberts and ask the Chief Justice to, quote, look into, unquote, what's going on with the FISA court and, you know, why the FISA court botched whatever it botched with regard to the Russian right, investigation. So this, this is sort of like further fruits of trying to turn the investigative lens on the FBI right. and now on now on the FISA judges who granted presumably some of the Carter Page Title I, I assume application. So so I drew your attention to that. You, did. you, you I thought you wrote a sort of a, a perfectly fun <laughs> snarky tweet that was just not out of the ordinary for uh, me. But it it really kind of took off in a how many times did that thing get retweeted? That was ridiculous. I don't know. This was my new. This was my new personal record. This was. Uh, let's see. Wait, I gotta find it. All right. Um, this was fourteen thousand two hundred retweets. Um, How many likes? And thirty-four thousand seven hundred ninety likes. Okay, so I don't understand what happened there. <laughs> I mean, I know you have a lot of followers and you get lots of retweets and likes, um, but that is nuts. I guess people are just really into FISA. You know, I, I <laughs> oh, that could be a good show title. I guess people are just really into FISA. Yeah, we can do better. Um, <laughs> I, I guess I just I you know I keep alluding to a conversation I would really love for us to have sometime, even though it's not directly topically relevant to the purpose of this podcast, on what it means for academics to have impact these days, mm-hmm. right? And you know, I'm not. I see. I see my sort of. I see my tweets as serving a couple of purposes. I mean, every now and then I'm trying to actually educate. Like every now and then I'm trying to be like, "Hey guys, here's the relevant yeah. statute." Like yeah. you know, this right. is this is my assessment of what of the validity of this claim. Sometimes it's just like you know, explaining, "Hey, there's a reason why we have these norms." And sometimes I'm just snarking. And then, yeah. and but do you feel like the snarks not just for entertainment's sake, which I don't read you yeah. as doing. I read you as basically counterpunching amongst the, in, in a particular space that yeah. is that is mainly sort of infotainment but yeah. you still want there to be counterpunches. Yeah, I, mean, I, I want to sort of say like, you know, there are there are lines that we don't cross and there are reasons why we don't cross them. The problem is is that like, you know, I think there's a tendency these days on everyone's part to dismiss all commentary as partisan. And it's like, you know, I I mean, I can point to examples where I've been just as critical of, you know, Democratic politicians who I think, you know, were contemplating inappropriate contact with the judiciary. I mean, they're, you know, I, you you know very well that I was I was quite critical of lots of things about the Obama. I mean, mm-hmm. I just, the problem is, is that, like, when you write a full article, you can actually, you know, cross-reference yourself and you can cite yourself. And tweets, I think, just get sort of, tweets are dangerous in the sense that they their their shelf life makes for sort of, 
as little nuance as possible given the format. I, I think there's a little bit of that, but I also think that Twitter, you know, with articles, nobody's reading the articles, but other people, there's a certain buy-in yeah. of, of seriousness where you're actually, if you're, if you're reading an article, you're engaging in a certain level of sacrifice on your own part True. to participate in the debates. And so you care somewhat about the debate space. Twitter is, you know, zero barrier to entry, zero cost to respond. Yeah. And, Don't and I know setting it. aside just, you know, the, the, the bot accounts, there's a whole lot of people out there that just would like to kind of symbolically emote back at you by saying partisan or whatever because they just feel a certain way about an issue and so as you know my long-standing view is don't play that game don't read the mentions well you can read the mentions just you know separate the wheat from the chaff yeah that's right um but i do think i mean i do think there's an interesting question about how anyone these days can try to you know not change the minds of but at least help inform those in the audience who are predisposed to not already agree with them. Because I think that is a challenge today that is much harder and much less obvious than I think it was as recently yeah. as 10 years ago. No, it's a, it's a huge problem. Well, yeah, uh, speaking, of, speaking of huge problems, that's um, actually, well, this is a huge problem for me. Speaking of huge problems for me, um, so we talked about the, the military double jeopardy case, uh, right, yeah, that, I've been, right. That, I, that I've been working on. So, um, was it last, whatever day May 1st was, last Wednesday, uh-huh. um, uh, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces granted our discretionary petition for review. So You got another case. I got another case. Um, <laughs> so so I'm now knee-deep in the in the merits brief. It's actually, it's a quick briefing schedule. It's 30, 30, 10 after the grant. You're going to be so busy this summer. I'm going to be just like walking the halls of the law school, stretching. I'm just going to give you work. <laughs> I don't work maybe, for you. Maybe, maybe the podcast will be uh, will be the Bobby show, and I'll, I'll show up every now and then. No, that no one's tuning in the, for that. The podcast will be Bobby talking and me typing furiously Can in the background. Imagine? It's sort of a, like a performance art yes. deal, like the, whatever the famous piece was where the, the, the guy comes out and doesn't say anything. Yes, yes, He yes. records just yes. the audience sound. Yes. The whole episode is just like you clacking away on the keyboards. By the way, uh, none of the listeners will be surprised to know that when Steve is typing, it's like in movies. You know how movie keyboardists are always like, clack, 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 like so fast. It's just rattling off, and they're not really typing anything. But I've watched you. That's actually how you type. So I, I am I – am, I am You are Cortez Peters himself reborn. Uh, wow. <laughs> a Cortez Peters reference. Um, so I am weird. I am, I am a hunter and pecker. Um, Wait, you don't use like regular – I, I was never. I never properly learned how to type. I type. I I, I self taught myself. Self taught. I I self taught myself. That's redundant. Yes. Did you, you self teach yourself? <laughs> and, uh, I self taught myself redundancy. <laughs> Ooh, that's a, that's a good episode title. I like mine better. Thank All right, you fine. Well, well, we'll we'll fight over it. Um, so I actually taught myself how to type when I was you know seven or eight when I got my first computer, and so I'm just a really really fast hunter and pecker. That is. <laughs> And I know that sounds wrong, but but is that so is that wrong. not the technical term for for how I type? Um, it is absolutely the technical term. I'm amazed, given the speed of your typing, which I've seen, that that's what it turns out to be. But I just I'm gonna be laughing about that for an hour. Oh good. Oh my god. Okay, so real quick, let's do a national security division rundown because we have some interesting cases over the past week. Um, first, United States versus Rahim. The jury a jury has convicted a 42 year old Texas man on uh, some material support-related charges, conspiracy and attempt to give the Islamic State material support, plus some false statement to the FBI charges. Um, this is al- These are always interesting. This is one where the guy's main function was uh, running something online, propaganda-type activity. In this case, to quote from the, the press release, he was moderating a social media channel dedicated to recruiting fighters for the Islamic State. 
Um, he was using Zello, which apparently is one of these uh, sort of like a walkie-talkie type push-to-talk direct messaging apps. Mm. Uh, and so there's a couple of quotes in here. He was running a channel on it called the State of the Islamic Caliphate Channel. So that's kind of obvious. Uh, he, he had various uh, pseudonyms he was using. But in one post, he says, uh, quote, kill and do not consult anyone, kill by any means, smash his head on the wall, spit in his face, burn, I mean anything, poison anything, and so on and so forth. Um, this is the basis for the material support charge. And, you know, we, we talk about material support and its capacity from time to time. It's a good and interesting illustration. Certainly, he has the mens rea of knowing that what he's doing is intended to benefit a designated foreign terrorist organization. Um, the question is, is this sort of conduct that doesn't appear to be subject to the direction and control of the group, so he's not personnel of the group himself, uh, what is it doing that's material support? Uh, and this underscores that recruitment has long been one of the core ways in which material support is used. And we tend not to notice it because these cases are always charged and described as just material support. Like right. that's one clear thing. There's a lot of interesting variety under the hood there. Recruitment, you know, with its elements of speech is a trickier form, I think a proper form, but I understand that some people feel a little bit more uh, sensitive about what it might mean mm-hmm. to be to be taking these views unless and until it passes a Brandenburg-style incitement test. But it's not really being conceived of and charged as incitement. But it's an interesting question. Uh, Steve, I'm interested in your view on this. Is recruitment different substantively from incitement? Or is it actually a mistake not to bring Brandenburg in to analyze? I mean, I guess the, the problem to me is, I mean, so Brandenburg requires imminence that I think is hard to show. That's why it matters, right? right? In a recruitment context. Like, you know, yes, I might be recruiting you to join an unlawful organization whose sole purpose is to engage in unlawful activity. But unless the, you know, under Brandenburg, that's irrelevant to whether I am therefore liable unless I am somehow, you know, not just encouraging not just encouraging lawless activity, but um, knowing that the such activity is, is imminent. Well, it's interesting because what, what the cash out of it is that the Constitution makes it very hard to prosecute somebody for using words to encourage people in, in sort of a direct sense. What you ought to do individually is go engage in the violence. But it makes it easier, at least in light of the ability of this yep. particular kind of case to withstand First Amendment challenge, much easier to, to prosecute somebody for using their words to induce somebody to join a group and thereby, hopefully, eventually engage in violence. Well, it's, I've always thought this was a this was a problem in the material support statute. I think you you and I disagree that it's a pro, about right. I it's think it's problem. interesting, but not a problem. Right. Maybe I think it's interesting, interesting possibly and, a, a and possibly a problem. So uh, a separate case: uh, United States versus uh, Waheli. Uh, this is a, a federal contractor who was working on contract for FBI doing translations, and so in particular, he's translating the fruits of wiretaps of a terrorism suspect. And this is incredible. I'm not making this up, Steve. You won't believe this. Uh, so he's in the midst of doing translation. And there's a, a voice call from the target uh, calling somebody's cell phone. Uh, guess whose cell phone he's calling? The translators, right? So he's, he's, he's supposed to translate this guy's call. I don't know how it is that this is the coincidence of the case, but nonetheless, this guy's on the tap. And so he he tries to cover it up and he he basically mistranslates what's going on to hide his own identity being in touch in some fashion with this target. Uh, one gets the impression maybe there's more to this story. Right now, he's just been arrested for lying to the FBI when they started asking him about this. Um, you wonder, like, will it turn out that uh, it's just a bizarre coincidence? Will it turn out that instead 
uh, he somehow took it upon himself, maybe out of sympathy, to get in touch with the target. I, that seems like a pretty incredibly stupid uh, thing to have done. Um, anyways, well, what would law enforcement be if it weren't for stupid criminals? Well, that's a, yes. Thank God for small favors. Indeed. Uh, third case: United States versus Lee. This is uh, a person who left CIA employee. Jerry Lee was a CIA person in, until into his forties. Back in 2007, he he left CIA and moved to Hong Kong or perhaps stayed there. I don't know if he'd been stationed there, but he decides to become resident in Hong Kong. Uh, In 2010, uh, Chinese intelligence approaches him, uh, basically asks if he'd be willing to cooperate in exchange for cash, and he does, and starts receiving money from them, and over time provides various elements of protected information. So uh, there's a guilty plea in this case now, and it's this is uh, the latest in a wave of cases involved that are counterintelligence investigations involving uh, former CIA employees. Uh, sort of a sad day, and, and you hate to see that at the agency. All right, that's what I've got in the National Security Division Roundup. You've got anything else? Should we talk about Venezuela for a second? Do we have to? Not really, because nothing's actually happened yet. There's a lot of, a lot of hinting, a lot of talk. So I, mean, I, I, I would like us to put down a marker to have a conversation about John Bolton sometime soon. Um, okay. And in particular, the markers he seems to be laying down, both with respect to military force in Venezuela and military force in Iran. Well, he's certainly on when it comes to war powers, and we'll tie this into to Barr as well, Attorney General Barr. These are all people of the uh, strong and robust view of inherent and unilateral executive authority to, to put the military uh, to use in a kinetic way, and that and, looms and, really and, large. And, and it helps when you have a. Um, Senior members of Congress who don't think that voting on uses of force is part of their job. Well, so you mentioned earlier you're referring to Lindsey Graham. I am referring to Lindsey Graham, or or the artist formerly known as Lindsey Graham. That's actually pretty apt. Uh, the senator formerly known as Lindsey Graham. I, I gather from you that he had a quote today where he said, I don't, I don't care about voting on that stuff. Uh, it it seems to me that that could, in context, perhaps mean a number of different things. Yes. Not quite as bad as it may sound. True. But certainly it would surprise no one, least of all any political scientist who's ever considered congressional be- voting behavior in the war powers context, to know that the the median congressperson probably would prefer, though they may not say it, but they probably would prefer to be able to not be on the takeoff so that they can decide whether or not to be there on the landing voluntarily. If it goes well, yes, I supported this, see my appropriations votes, et cetera. If it goes poorly, notice that I didn't authorize this. No, I know. This. And just, but just to beat a dead horse that I know you don't disagree with, um, every time we try to figure out why all of this war power has drifted from the legislature to the executive branch, the answer begins and ends with abdication on the part of Congress. Right. And, and the political scientists, you know, Amy Ziegart's got, yep. you know, an article that, that unpacks this, yep. I, I believe. Um, this is what they're incentivized to do. Yep. Uh, um, speaking of war powers, should we talk about Westerosi military strategy? Friends. Or, or the lack thereof, apparently. Friends, Romans, and countrymen, uh, lend us your ears if you would like to hear lots of spoilers in review of episode four of I this I come season's- to bury Game of Thrones not to praise it. That's exactly what I'm here for. So, so if you're if you're going to sign out now, thanks for being a listener. As always, spread the now, word. How's that for an episode title? What's that? I come to bury Game of Thrones, not to praise it. That's got possibilities. <laughs> All right, you're holding on. I am. Well, I just sometimes I feel bad when the titles are always about the frivolity. 
I, you know, forgive me if I think that this week that's perhaps the most interesting thing we're going to talk well, about. Well, I think that is the case. And by the way, anyone who's still with us, all three of you, um, did the title – we have a kind of an ongoing debate. I, I kind of feel like the titles must matter. We need to signal what the show's really about on a particular episode. I don't. And Steve thinks it doesn't matter. That's probably right. If you're a listener still with us, do the titles we choose matter? Or is that if, – if they just matter in the sense of like, oh, choose something entertaining, but otherwise no one's deciding whether to listen based on the title? Like, right. Would you rather clever titles that are – somehow related to the episode or descriptive titles that are a yeah. more complete depiction of what you're going to get. Because I think that's what the show notes are for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what we want to know. Yes. All right, Ga- Game of Thrones, or should I say Game of Groans. <laughs> that, been You've been saving that one. I have been. That's, <laughs> You've been saying that one since lunch. <laughs> I, literally. I got to say, I feel like they've jumped the shark. Ooh, oh, we pulled out the jump the shark. And I have a particular the, moment. The shark has... Okay, the, sh- the, the shark, shark is, has been jumped. No, the shark is Brienne. The shark is Brienne. I mean, oh, or okay. Jamie, really. I don't yeah. blame her so much as Jamie. Okay, let's talk. Did you like this Baby episode? Baby Stark. Do, 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 oh, my do, God. <laughs> That's good. Thank you. That's good. I, although I can't take full credit. Someone, someone last Sunday night tweeted after the... That denouement, are you Stark? Do, do, uh, do, 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 do. Are you Stark? <laughs> um, okay, so let's start with, with the first observation I think will not be controversial. It was not one episode, it was two. Now, there was the Winterfell portion of the episode, which was almost a full-length episode. And then there was like, and, and it was slow and it was deliberate, and parts of it I thought were very powerful. I really loved the sort of, the, the funeral dirge at the beginning, right? Like, mm-hmm. I thought that was really cool. And parts of it were wacky, like when Braun shows up and is like, hey, y'all. Uh. Um, but that was one episode, right? And then it's like, oh, fast forward, Dragonstone, King's Landing, war, Go. So I will agree. Now, to never mind that, like the first five seasons depend upon these places being very far apart. I mean, <laughs> so they here's the sense in which they've just jumped the shark. the uh, The first several seasons were characterized by this powerful realism and verisimilitude that's conveyed by how hard it was to do anything, how gigantic it was to get from one part of the country to another. That's why it can be a Freaking blizzard in Winterfell and sunny and warm down in King's Landing. Um, and that doesn't even begin to get you to the rest of the country. Now, in this season, and to a limited extent last season, people just like zip back and forth. And it's there's like a bullet train. And there's not even sort of a gesture or a patina of like, hey, character says something so you sense that a month and a half passed. Nope. It's just, it's just like cheap network TV drama of the old school instead of the more realistic and compelling and gritty uh, telenovels that have been uh, what Game of Thrones had been up until recently. And I, I got to say, I don't like it. And there's other features of it, too. They keep doing these set pieces where the camera slowly pans all the major characters, perfectly arranged, arranged in echelons with the most major characters up front and their supporting characters in supporting postures behind them. And a Starbucks cup in the middle. Stare, yeah, that's the only entertaining part of the whole damn deal. Um so I got to say, I just feel like they've kind of given up trying to have it be different from regular TV. And week by week, it's becoming more and more regular TV. So I would say the opening, uh, the, the funeral scenes have some good lingering elements because it's slow and, and you know. Although it's John, not Danny, which I think is an important setup. Uh, yeah, that that's something. I think that the, uh, the element of unrealism of the immaculate, perfect, you know, the trouble that would have been necessary. By the way, where the hell did all that wood come from? 
Um, and, you know, not even attempt to say, like, well, look, this is three weeks later. These bodies would be putrefied. It would be an in- insane amount of work for the lingering survivors who turn out to be vastly more numerous because you need it to be for plot than it actually seemed like in the, in the battle as depicted the other night where the zombies were everywhere. There was nothing left in the field. There were no other great parts of the castle for these half the Unsullied to still be hiding, half the Dothraki. What, where, where'd that half come from? Were they like hiding in the dark that whole time? Did like half the Dothraki charge across that field and like snuff out their Iraq so that they could just like hide in the corner while it went down? There are some, holes. There, there are some holes. there are some sizable holes in this episode. Much more so than we're used to, I feel like. And they're just racing to the end. Well, so, so, so this is my, so this is, I think, my largest problem, which is this, 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 um, pace is artificial, right? Like, you know, if they if they if they had more than six episodes of story left to tell, right? Why confine yourself to six episodes? I mean, I feel like you know this is like um, we they decided they had six episodes first, and then they decided they actually had like eleven episodes yeah. worth of material. I think they could make money if they wanted to keep going. They didn't. Okay, ha- they don't have to rush through it like this. Well, but too late. All Do you right, think so, they can't keep the actors? Is that part of the deal? Like they just can't keep these people on? No, no but they could have made the, just the season. I mean, I don't think I don't think the season being six episodes versus nine episodes would have made that radical a difference. Yeah, it's weird. Um, okay, so, so should we talk about what actually happened? Yeah, and the thing that I I like the least in part because. I think it could have been done and it's I don't have an objection to what happened yeah. I have an objection to how they narrated and staged it and framed it and all the rest and how they acted it and it was clearly done very consciously was uh, Jamie and Brienne falling into bed together uh-huh. um, there couldn't be less chemistry the way they did that they couldn't have made it and maybe they would say like yeah it's supposed to be awkward and lacking in chemistry it didn't feel true to the characters that it went down the way it did. Yeah. And and even worse, that then right. Jamie, Jamie turns around and is like, I'm out. Wait, wait, yeah. Since when did the did the new Jamie, who's been built up over multiple years right. of a nice, smooth redemption progression. She's a hateful person and so am and I. So am I, and I'm suddenly I'm self loathing and that's awesome hooked up. But now I'm now I'm terrible and now I'm self loathing. Yeah. Yep. Where'd that come from? No idea. So so I'll tell you where it came from. Plot. Plot. So um, l- let me also, I- I'd also like to point out once again um, that Danny's not very good at this dragon thing, right? <laughs> like, you know, um, oh, let me just fly around and not conduct, you know, oh, you know, Euron's fleet, whatever. I'm sure it's there somewhere, but they, they can't possibly Yeah, we're not going to scout ahead with our dragons from a high altitude that they can't shoot from. Yeah, you know, because, you know, th- no one would ever think of that. Hey, they're shooting, they're shooting, uh, you know, giant, uh, you know, giant crossbows, crossbows, whatever. wherever they are. Um, I wonder if those things can point straight up from the ship or if there's a maximum elevation like there is for some artillery. Like dive bomb. And so maybe I'll get right above them and come down raining bloody dragon fire on them. Yeah. No, no, I think I'll just like stay pretty low and level. And Why? Plot. Um, exactly. Right. Um, and by the way, Euron, on the other hand, has some pretty – he must have satellite coverage of the waters because – He knew exactly where the dragons were. Yeah. No, it's um, it ridiculous. Um, uh Cersei kills Missandei, but not Tyrion. Plot. I got to say, they must have been thinking there was some sort of like bookend symbolism. It's like Ned Stark, you know, the, the executioner comes up behind her and lops her head off. They, they took a perfectly good character and they ruined it by a very transparent ham-handed. She, it was obvious they were going to do it from the moment they put her up there. There's nothing surprising about it. They just wanted to <laughs> I make... I thought they might push her. That would have been better. They just wanted to make Grey Worm more interesting by saying, you know what? He needs some more motive. Oh, I disagree. I completely disagree. Okay. What, what do you think? Good. We have disagreement. Um, so who is Danny? Who has been Danny's conscience on this show? Uh, Tyrion? Um, 
Sort of, but I mean, like Tyrion, she sort of keeps. Oh, you're saying it's symbolic of it's the removal of her of her breaks of her of her conscience, right? So, so So in service of a Mad Queen, Danny, kind of. So who did she lose last week? Right, she lost last week. She loses yeah, Jorah. Jorah yeah. Right, this week she loses Missandei. She loses the two advisors yeah. who she actually trusted above all, who were able to moderate her, you know, harshest impulses. That I'm down with. That's cool, and that will serve this sort of increasing tension. Like maybe you shouldn't support her, Mad Queen, Mad Queen type narrative, or, or Mad Queen or Bad Queen. Right, either yeah. way. I mean, that's. I think we're heading toward Mad Queen. I mean, I, I really think that. Like, I think so. My concern is that. Um, where we're heading is the cataclysmic showdown with Cersei is actually next week, and that episode six is John versus Danny. Yeah, that'd be pretty awesome. Where where it's like she's you know, got too much blood in her hands and and like vengeance and yeah. hate and doesn't actually want to rule justly. Right, but just ultimately just wants to rule. And so we have and so right and maybe well, maybe, maybe the question. Kinslayer. But this is another quibble I have. So the, the the one reasonably useful sort of dialogue is Varys and Tyrion having yes, this sort of indeed. you know this almost platonic dialogue. I serve the realm. Right. And I, and I appreciate that. You know, he's he's not a popular sovereigntist. He's right. he's a what's the Roman, the Latin for uh, the health of the populace? Vox populi. Yeah, yeah. So he's he he wants some uh, the voice of the people. The voice um, of the people, but yeah, there is a phrase. Yeah, you know yeah, what I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. Um, so he's he's interested in the health of the populace, the well-being of it. And so he wants a, he wants the you know the platonic ruler, and he's beginning to think that Jon Snow is, or he's not beginning to think. He's clearly decided Jon's that. Danny's not. And Tyrion says, "No, she's good, and she means so well." When did what was it in Tyrion's character arc and exposure that would really have so deeply convinced him that Danny is so wonderful? Based on what he's seen, I mean, you know, you say he freed the slaves. Okay, that's awesome. That's good. Pretty sure, you know, a lot of our main character, good, good characters, would have been down with that as well. It, it doesn't ring that true, and uh, and it gets less true over time as they continue to sort of show her um, being more of the iron-handed, my way or the highway type, or not so much the highway, but as you know, my dragons will burn you. Uh, did you find it? I did not. All right, some a, a listener. I'm sure we have some some totally. Latin experts who will uh, illum- illuminate that issue for us. Uh, but don't you think it was just kind of ham-handed? It, it didn't. It didn't have any emotional cash out. Well, they're, they're just they're just laying down a marker. I mean, right there, they're clearly setting this up so that so that the there really are actually two different battles left. Right, the yeah. the one between the sort of the the allies and Cersei. And then the sort of the the, the the battle over post-war Europe. Okay. So what about – yeah, I kind of like that. So we get a new Cold War sort of at the end of it. Yeah. Cold where, Danny, where Danny is Stalin and John is, I guess, Churchill. And that leaves us maybe with Danny killing <laughs> – That's an awkward – Danny yeah. killing John and Sansa being the – Sansa's Churchill. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, what about this? You mentioned Braun, you know, making. Oh them, gosh, so Braun. That, let me talk about Braun. So, so let me let me. You have a superpower, right? And your superpower is that you can see the past, right? Um, including like the recent past, right? Wouldn't you? I don't know. Use that. We're talking about Bran. Oh, oh Bran. Braun. Oh, oh, Braun. Braun. Bran. Whatever. <laughs> yes. Don't even start Braun. Braun. No, Braun. Braun look, is dead to me. So with Bran. The problem with Bran is like his omniscience, his ability to float through time actually makes him too powerful. So this is like the Superman problem where Superman's right. never interesting unless, you know, the actor kind of makes him interesting the way Christopher Reeve could back in the 80s. Because you, because if they actually use the full the full yeah. of the, the full pamphlet of their powers, it would be boring. It, it requires constantly having the character be frustrating by not using their powers in ways to, they could tell you like really like, critical Like where's Euron's fleet? 
Yeah, exactly. Like, hey, how about those Ravens? Maybe yeah. you could put those to use. Hey. hey there's an idea. Um, so so there's Bran. And, Sorry. And, I, and, Bran and there Bron. you just have to, yeah. Now, Bran, I find equally frustrating because he's actually a fun character. They could have done something interesting with him showing up. But instead, what do they do? They just have him show up in there. Like, conveniently, the hand of the queen has not an unsullied inside. Right, not no a death wracking inside. Nobody. Yeah. And, and, and Bron just gets to walk in with a crossbow. There's nobody there right. to do anything no, about it. No one noticed the guy walking around Winterfell with a crossbow. Right, the well-known guy right. and by, who's last seen with Cersei. True. And then he walks out, and we're supposed to think, like, oh, and, and there's and Tyrion and Jamie just sit there as opposed to jumping up, calling for help, and saying, let's get this guy. Right. Um, it just required – it was such a sort of just like a, a cheap TV sort of well, plus, plot point. Well, plus, I mean, so so this makes no sense from either of their perspectives, right? Braun has no – you know, now there's – you know, Tyrion and, Tyrion and Jamie won't make that mistake again, except they will because it's a Game of Thrones. Right. Right? Um, so Braun has no way to get back to them, and they let him walk away. Mm-hmm. So it's just like – and, and by the way yeah. – the idea that it's point, almost offensive, like no, the number was, of stupid. Well, and, and you wonder, like, what what is even is this? Just some way to just keep Braun yeah. in there because he's a fan favorite again. Who, which, which fans of uh, who, who? Oh, I like him, but like, but then have him more. have him do scoundrelly things. Right. This isn't a scoundrelly no, thing. No, this is just a, a dumb, stupid. You know, um, I you know, pay me who could pay me the most. And what made him interesting before was that he was a dirtbag, but there was this glimmer of humanity in his and attachment honor. to Tyrion. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Yep. Yeah. Um, uh, how about okay? One more. Uh, I complained last week about the comicification of Tormund John yes. Spain. Oh gosh, it's worse. It was like you know what they've done to him. He's like David Schwimmer in the later years of Friends, where they take Ross's character and they make him stupider and stupider and goofier and goofier and just turn him into like awkward blunt comic relief. Right. Whereas Ross, right, Ross starts as like this fancy like doctor of paleontology, Who, who's like a, got a strong nerd streak. But he's like aloof, but not but not stupid. Well, but he's lovable and charming. Yes. He's, he's charmingly nerdy. Right. right. He just becomes a big goofball by the end. Right. Now, maybe that's maybe that's actually true to what happens with age. I think we can all relate. Huh? But I think it's actually just screenwriting getting lazy or, or script writing getting lazy and thinking, you know, we need somebody to be funnier and what's what's the easiest and, and laziest way to do that? Have them have them be ridiculous. Yep. And I thought that was exactly what it was. Um, I just I, I mean, I, is there anything positive we can say? So for all of that, I mean, you know, I, I enjoyed the the out the 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 time spent watching the thing. It's just that, like my mind hurts from like how stupid it's getting. I just I'm disappointed because I've actually never had a negative reaction like that for the most part. I've always enjoyed the shows. I thought the was it the season finale? One of the we talked about this last season, right? That one of the episodes in season seven really bothered me for all of its. Um, no, the stupid trip up north. Right. The, yeah, that the was the beginning of this. The pointless caper up north, mm-hmm. which you which know, served plot, which which was only there to which was only there so that they could get a dragon to the Walk of Condon. Which, by the way, you have this impregnable bloody fortress, mm-hmm. right? Why would you ever do anything that would risk the impregnable fortress? Why would you be outside the walls of Winterfell? You right. know everything about this. So it's just like, and it's like you know, I I've, I've clearly sunk enough cost into this project by now that I'm going to watch it to the end. Oh yeah. But, you know, there's a whole discussion about this on Twitter Sunday night about, like, how many TV series have ever ended well. Yeah. Um, it is I, – I, there's no question it is the hardest possible thing you can do with a TV series is, is bring it in for a – if not a graceful landing, then at least a an appropriate ending. Yeah, we need something better than Lost here. Um, indeed. We, we need, like, a, a you know – Either Sopranos or Six Feet Under or, yeah. you know, The Americans. I mean, we need something in that I, genre. I, I, I'd like a MASH level quality of ending. MASH ended yeah, well, MASH, relatively yeah. speaking. Not, not, Star, not, uh, not Star Trek um, Enterprise. Um, 
I thought Star Trek Next Generation ended pretty well. Yeah, Next Generation was pretty good. All good things must come to an end. Although, there, although I have problems with some of the things that happened in that episode. Like some of the science makes no sense. Well, okay. <laughs> well you're going to get that serious rabbit hole there. Um, all warp, right. Well, I warp thirteen is not a thing. <laughs> so I think that um, I think that the next episode, obviously, some dragons are going to burn lots of people. There's going to be a lot of death and I mean, right, I mean, yeah, and I, it's going to cause rupture it, of the it, good guys. But is it your sense that that's episode five, not episode six? Yeah, actually, I hadn't thought about it until you said it. But I buy your theory, and so I think it could be really interesting to have it be a, a political game in the final final. Play. We're also heading toward Clagan Bowl. Yeah, and that's like. You know, only partially interesting because yeah. they've signaled it for so long. Yeah. Uh, what, the only thing that's interesting to me there is surely they will at last knock his helmet off. So we can see what he looks like. And it's going to be Like so, Anakin Skywalker and at the end oh, of uh, Return of the Jedi. so disgusting. I can't wait. It's going to be <laughs> awesome. That'll be good. Um, so one more just really quick plug before, before we go. So I watched the first episode of this new HBO miniseries on Chernobyl. Um, and it was brilliant. Oh yeah, I keep seeing the, the it was, plugs for it that. It was really, I mean, the first if if the whole series is going to be like the first episode, yeah. I, I'm in. Hey, uh, just a quick uh, speculation about: the, is there any chance of a Dornish army coming to the uh, sort of like Lord of the Rings like last minute aid of a of the good guys getting beat against like the, the Lancers? Lo- just like the the just like the Vale in the Battle of the Bastards. I mean, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, there was this random drop into this random unknown that Prince the of new Dorn. Prince of Dorn is, yeah. And they, sure. They're more motivated than anybody. Listen, here is the central how problem. The, how about the remainder of the Highgarden army? Is there any Highgarden yeah, army? maybe not. So here is the central problem with Game of Thrones. There is literally nothing that could happen in the next two episodes that I sit back and say, I can't believe that happened. Right, because they have suspended all disbelief. Right, they have abandoned all convention, and plot is driving everything. And distance and time no longer constrain where right. things can and happen. Right, and so you know, I mean, what in a in a world in which there are no rules, sure, a Dornish army could come. Maybe the Night King's not really dead. So maybe, maybe Lady maybe, Stoneheart. Right, maybe the Dary, Direwolves. Dario Naharis is going to show Dario up with a, like a, you know this huge army to to. I just, I mean, it's just like you know. The, <laughs> So we talk, I mean, and then he'll take his face off, and it'll be Jack and Hagar. There's there are degrees of suspension of disbelief, and I just I just can't yeah. get over like how much disbelief we are now supposed to suspend. <sighs> and yet we're gonna love it. It'll be fun and, and sad when it's we over. We got two more weeks of this torture. Yeah. All right. Speaking of ending that, maybe we should end this episode. Yeah, maybe we should. Um, oh, we just went over an hour. Damn it! <laughs> you were so optimistic that oh, this would be a short one. Um, so um, I will just say this because I'm enjoying this. Um, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. It's finals time, everybody. So stay studying out there. Adios.